Hello everybody, good morning. How are we all? Good, 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 good. Let's open up our Bibles to Luke chapter 24. Can you believe we are coming to the end of Luke? Having been in it for, we worked out yesterday, two years and nine months. Is that all? So Luke chapter 24. I won't read it just yet. We'll read it in a second, but we'll read the first 12 verses. open. Great. Okay, so I'm assuming everyone probably has seen the news from last night. Um, uh, If you've not, you must have missed it. Um, But for those who have, uh, let me fill you in. So, uh, Balmoral Castle, King Charles III was found dead last night. And um, Rishi Sunak was taken to Buckingham Palace and the Privy Council uh, has... um, given it over to him. The government's been dissolved. That's also become uh, the, uh, the Privy Council's territory now. So yeah, we no longer live in a constitutional monarchy. Now there's two questions that you might come when, when you hear a story like that. The first one is, okay, did it happen? And obviously the answer is no. King Charles is still very much alive, Rishi Sunak is still only a meagre prime minister, and so on and so forth. But, if someone was taken to Buckingham Palace and given residence there, I don't need to tell you they've become king. That's blindingly obvious, because we know the symbols. In the same way, if I said, for instance, the keys to 10 Downing Street have been given over to Nigel Farage, what does that mean? He's the Prime Minister. So, if someone doesn't know what these symbols mean, then we might have to explain them. But if you know the symbols, then you know what they mean. Now, this morning we're going to be looking at the question of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And there's two questions that we need to ask. Did it happen? And if it did, what does it mean? Let's read Luke 24, verses 1 to 12. It says this, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Almost every worldview is based on an event. So if you're a Buddhist, for instance, you believe that at some point in the 400s BC, Buddha was sat under a fig tree, 
and had this experience, this uh, encounter with the divine, you might call it, reached enlightenment following this particular method. And so he is now qualified to be the teacher and the leader to other people into enlightenment based on that event. Or if you're a Muslim, for instance, you believe that at some point in the 600s BC, the angel Gabriel came and appeared before Muhammad in a cave and gave him the words of the Quran. That now qualifies him to be the teacher of what God has said to him. And so on and so forth. If you're a New Age mystic, for instance, then you believe that there are objective truths that we cannot see by science, but we have to uh, believe, like, for instance, the chakras in the body and so on and so forth. The, The point is that all of these views are a claim on a truth that is out there in the world. Something that happened. Here's the problem. How can I go and find out if an angel really did appear to Muhammad? Might have happened. How can I know? There's no investigation, there's no evidence I can look at. I basically just have to take him on his word. And then if that's true, then everything else follows. Or a Buddhist, the same thing. I just have to basically believe that he really did reach enlightenment, and therefore he's probably my best bet. Christians also have an event. We have a thing that happened. But our thing is very distinct. We're saying that publicly, the, the, someone who claimed to be the Messiah was crucified and killed by the Romans. That's not that an amazing thing to have happened. There are far more amazing things that have happened in human history. But then we're saying he was publicly raised from the dead and people saw him. That is a public event. That is something that we can go and investigate. That is something that we can go and dig into. Like all the other amazing things that have happened in history. So for instance, 2500 BC, the pyramids were built public thing, we can go and look, we can go and do archaeology, we can go and investigate. 1969, there was a moon landing and people walked on the moon. That was a thing that happened, a public thing, a thing we can go and investigate. Jesus' resurrection from the dead is not just some kind of religious truth that, well, we're going to plead with you to come and believe this. It's a public event that really happened in history that we can look into And it is the thing on which all of Christianity is based. Paul says to the Corinthians, If Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is futile. There is no Christian faith. So there's a lot riding on this. Because I think most people in this room would probably call themselves Christians. And that means, more than anything else, you believe that 2,000 years ago there was a body in a tomb. And then a few days later, there was not a body in the tomb. It walked out. And really, anything else you have that would lead you to believe that you're a Christian is irrelevant if that's not true. It doesn't matter what experiences you've had. It doesn't matter what prophecies you've had spoken over you. It doesn't matter what kind of experiences you've had with God. If the bones of Jesus are found tomorrow, there is no Christianity. You've been mistaken. But here's the thing. They're not going to find those bones. And we have really good reason why they're not going to find those bones. And if you don't normally take notes, I'm going to say please do now because this is really important for you to know for yourself but also as people who are making this message known to people outside because we don't speak like other religions. We're not saying we've got this really good ethical system and it will help your life if you follow it. 
We're not saying we've got some new hidden wisdom. We are saying, hey, Jesus is alive from the dead, whether you like it or not. You can either submit, you can either call him Lord, you can either come to him in faith, or you can live in a dream world. If we're going to make a claim like that, we need to be able to back it up. So, I'm just going to give four lines of evidence. Bear in mind, we're going to do, how did it happen? What does it mean if it did? So, let's, let's ask that question. Did it happen? Can we really believe that someone who was dead wasn't anymore a few days later? Okay, first thing. There was an empty tomb. This is pretty well established, pretty agreed upon by everyone. There was a tomb with a body in it who belonged to a man called Joseph Arimathea. And then there was nobody found. And I just want to say this. I believe that this is the word of God. I believe everything this says is true. But even if I didn't, even if I thought this is just another book that comes from the many books we have in human history, what it does is it tells us that people in 33 AD believed that the tomb was empty. The disciples came there and found there was no body. It also tells us that the authorities did not have the body. In Matthew 28, for instance, Matthew has to respond to a rumour that's going around in his own day. So in Matthew 28, um, it says this, "While While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say the disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did um, as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this day. Now let's think, why is Matthew writing this? He's writing this because in his own day, the rumour that's going around is, well, we know what happened to the body. You guys took it. And that's what the authorities are spreading. And so Matthew has to take time to respond to this and say, no, we didn't. Why would he respond to it if the authorities weren't saying it? If the authorities are saying it, they don't have the body. And in fact, they're saying they came and took it when the soldiers were asleep. So it also tells us that this tomb was guarded. This is not the Christians saying this. It's the authorities saying, yeah, there's an empty tomb, but you took it. So there is an empty tomb. So what? Someone could have stolen the body. Someone who wasn't the disciples. Someone who wasn't the authorities. Someone else came and took it. But then you have the fact that multiple people, at different times and in different places, had an experience where they believed they saw Jesus back from the dead. Now, one person hallucinating after someone has died is not that hard to explain. Grief does strange things. 500 people all seeing someone who was dead a few weeks ago is a bit harder to explain. 500 people seeing someone who was dead a few weeks ago and two people over here and one person over here and three people over here, you're getting even harder to explain. So, you have people who are claiming that they saw Jesus rise from the dead. Now again, well, they're lying. So what? Okay. What about this? Where on earth would these guys get this idea from? 
So we have the origin of their beliefs. Let me, let me explain what I mean by this. If um, you're talking to your Buddhist friend, and their, their dad died recently, for instance, and, and they say, but I have actually seen him back again. You say, oh my goodness, where? Oh, I was just looking in the field, and there's this bunny that just hopped across, and I just knew that that was my dad. That's not that difficult to explain, because reincarnation and that kind of view is very common amongst that religion, amongst that thought process, right? So the origin of that belief, where did this guy get the idea from that that bunny was his dad? Well, easy, he's a Buddhist. However, Jews in the first century didn't think like this. None of them thought, well, if he dies, God's just going to bring him back. That's very, very strange. They did believe in resurrection, but they believed that everyone would be resurrected on the last day. No one had a belief that there was going to be a resurrection here and a resurrection here and then you know, so on and so forth until the last day. It's very bizarre. This challenges their worldview. It isn't supported by it. So where on earth did they get this idea that one person came back? If they wanted to say, this guy died but God honoured him, what they would say is, he ascended to heaven. Elijah. Elijah, faithful to God, good prophet, and then what happened? He was taken up to heaven. Enoch, taken up to heaven. This is the Jewish language they would use when someone has been honoured by God. They don't say, he died but God rose him from the dead. So where on earth did they get this idea from? And the fourth one, they died for this idea. Peter, crucified for proclaiming that Jesus was back from the dead. One of many martyrs, I mean he by, by far had the most gruesome, but all of the apostles were killed for their belief and for their proclamation that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, as we've gone through those four, I've pointed out some holes in if they were the only one. If all we had was an empty tomb... Well, there's a hundred stories that could come about. If all we had was people saying that they saw him, that's not much to go on. In history, we have uh, two things we talk about. We have scope of explanation and ease of explanation. Okay, so what we mean by that is this, 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 and this happened. Okay. Well, if we say, well, it was caused by this, we ask the question, how much can it explain Maybe it can explain the top three, but not the fourth. Maybe it can explain two, but not four. The best option is the one that has the scope to explain all four. And then ease of explanation, the one that makes the most sense. So what answer is there that can satisfy this? How do we have an empty tomb, which people on both sides are saying, yeah, it's empty, we don't know what happened to this body. People saying, I know what happened to this body, he's back from the dead. In a world where saying such a thing doesn't make sense. And then those people go and die for that belief. There have been lots of critics of the resurrection. Over the last few months I've had to read a lot of their books. They are very disappointing. Some of them are very, very smug. Well, it's really obvious what happened. The latest psychological data can tell us about group hallucinations. Okay, yeah, great. You explain the appearances. Give me the empty tomb, the origin, the belief, and the conviction of their belief. And so on and so forth. People are able to explain away one of these points. But the only answer that satisfies all of, this, uh, all of these things is, it does seem like Jesus came back from the dead. 
That's a pretty radical thing that we're saying. The most likely historical explanation is something that has never happened before. A man who was dead is now not dead. And it's the only thing that makes sense. And let's not get into the habit of thinking like so many people do. Well, in the ancient world, they were very easy to convince of anything, really. They were not stupid. The women came back and they presumed they were talking nonsense. Just as you would. People didn't think, oh yeah, maybe he is back from the dead. That kind of thing happens all the time. They thought it was nonsense. The only reason that they believed it was because when Jesus actually met with them, it was quite hard to keep up doubting. And so, did it happen? Yes. And if you, if you still say, well, I'm not really convinced, I would challenge you on this. Have you begun with the premise that this can never happen? Because if you start by saying, well, no one can be risen from the dead, then no amount of evidence that ever can be produced is ever going to convince you. But if you say, I think it's very, very unlikely that someone would ever come back from the dead, but all the evidence does point that way, that is a much healthier place to be thinking in anything in life, really. Evidence has to challenge assumptions. So did it happen? Yes, it did. Jesus rose from the dead. Now do we at that point say, whoop de do, fantastic, I think it's also um, sunny in Siberia at the moment. If it was, would it matter? If I said to you, Greg, there was just five minutes ago a uh, a landslide in Tonga, would you doubt me? If I showed you evidence from my phone that there was a cliffside in Tonga, okay, how would that change your day? Not too much. Didn't didn't have any plans for kind of cliffing in Tonga this afternoon. No, okay. So a landslide in Tonga doesn't really matter. Did it happen? Yes, maybe. No. Did Jesus rise from dead? Yes, he did. Does it matter? Does it need to change our days? Well, yes. It does. If you notice, one of the things that the angels say, when the, when the women say, what's going on here? They say, I love the kind of nonchalant way they say, do you remember how he told you this was going to happen? And they go, oh, oh yeah, he did actually. Oh, yeah. What they're saying is, remember the things that he said to you. He said that he was going to die and be risen from the dead. And guess what? He has. What this says is, this validates his mission. If he'd been saying, God is at work, he's doing something new, God is saying this to you, God is allowing this, God is saying, come to me, uh, and I'm also going to die and raise up from the, come back from the dead, and then he stays dead, I think those other things are pretty much in doubt too. But, if he says lots of different things which are radical and cause a change. And one of those things is that he's going to die and come back. And then he does. Those other things get authenticated too. This is the stamp that says Jesus' ministry is trustworthy. So we can almost now begin at the beginning of Luke again. Should we just restart Luke? No, let's not. The point is that this affirms Jesus' ministry. And there's lots of things in Jesus' ministry which are really helpful to be affirmed. So for instance, one of the things that Jesus goes back to all the time is the scriptures are true. The scriptures are God's word. The scriptures testify about me. The scriptures cannot be broken. Now, 
if I ask the, the Muhammad angel Gabriel thing to you again, do you believe it happened? Well, maybe you do, maybe you don't. What evidence do you have for it? We're not asking you to do that when it comes to the scripture. We're not asking you to say, well, just trust us, this is God's word. What we're saying is, it does seem like God's word, it does seem to be truthful, and Jesus, whose words we now believe, because he came back from the dead, tells us it's God's word, tells us it's trustworthy, tells us that it can't be broken. So we come to scripture believing it is true because we believe Jesus is true. It gives us God's diary, if you like, the resurrection. So it's very helpful in that regard. It tells us that everything Jesus said he meant and will do. It tells us that God is not a God who is out there. God is not the God who said, I'm thinking I'm going to do a creation today. But there it is. Okay. Off you go. Enjoy. I'm off. It tells us that God is a God who has seen that this world is in pain. That has seen that this world is messed up. That has seen that this world needs to be fixed. And that he has come in and got involved because he has launched a new creation in one man, Jesus. The fact that God intervened to bring this man back from the dead, to authenticate all the things he says, tells us that God is involved in this world and cares very much for the hurts and pains and sufferings that we experience. The resurrection says, in an action, God loves you more than you can ever know. God is not a God who is far off. He is there. And you just think about how this affects something like the problem of suffering. I'm not going to pretend that this is easy. Like when, we, when we actually think about how much pain there is in the world, it really should be a weight on us. I mean, the pains that we go through in 21st century Britain, some of them are bad. Some of them are really bad. None of them are as bad as a lot of people have to experience every day. In many parts of the world, to exist is to just be in constant agony. Psychologically, physically, so on and so forth. And when we look at these things and we actually take a glance, we do end up saying, how does this fit with a God who is all-powerful and all-loving? And we call this the problem of suffering, but let's not pretend it's just some kind of philosophical issue that we can be unfazed by. This is real stuff. But... The resurrection of Jesus really causes a perspective change on this. I love what John Stott says about this. John Stott makes a comment that often that he has gone into Buddhist temples and has been met by the smiling fat man sat on the altar. And the answer to pain in the Buddhist system is just detach yourself from the world. Be free from worries and cares of the world. Just kind of live in bliss. He just says that answer just does not satisfy He makes this comment that as often as I have seen his face, I have had to turn away and instead find my eyes drawn to the man bleeding from the cross. He makes the comment, the resurrection of Jesus does not necessarily answer the problem of suffering, but it does put a stamp on it. When we deal with all the pain that is in this world, there is in red ink... Jesus has risen from the dead. God is at work. This pain is somehow, in some way, connected in this amazing plan that God has got, is getting to through the resurrection of Jesus.
And lastly, the resurrection of Jesus tells us who is in charge. It's not Rishi Sunak, don't worry. It's not King Charles III. Let me read to you from Acts 17. This is talking about Paul and um, Silas. It says this, When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. There there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men have caused trouble all over the world. They have turned it upside down and now they have come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees and they say there is another king. One called Jesus. They have got the point. This is the Messiah who suffered and has risen from the dead. And they hear it and they say, you're saying he's the new king. Absolutely right. Yes, we are. This is the Jewish scriptures equivalent of someone being welcomed to sit in Buckingham Palace. 1 Samuel 7, God makes a promise to David. From your offspring, I will raise up one who is to rule. And it's funny, when you read Acts 2, Peter reads that and he goes, Oh, oh, he's going to raise up one from your offspring. Not just like establish, raise from the dead. Jesus is the promised king and God has proven this by bringing him back from the dead. They were absolutely right. There is a new king one called Jesus. Did it happen? Yes, it did happen. What does it mean? There is a very, very good king on the throne. Further on in Acts 17, Paul is now in Athens. And he's talking to them about why they should leave their gods and come to this God who has made himself known in Jesus. And he says, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. For he has set a day that he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to all people by raising him from the dead. God has proved that he will judge the world in justice by raising a man from the dead to be the judge. What does it mean? It means he's the king. And, and can I just give you some really good news? When he rose from the dead, he was the same Jesus that he was before. The same gentle, loving, compassionate, kind Jesus. And now he's on the throne. And now he's the judge. The judge who is going to judge this world in righteousness. Can I just say... Judgment Day is a terrifying prospect. Brackets, if you don't know the judge. But this is the Jesus we know. And so, Paul says, he's been risen from the dead, and so we command everyone everywhere to repent, to turn from their sins, 
and to trust in Christ. This is not just some mystical truth. This is not just some set of ethics that we think work really well. This is not just some event that we're claiming happened and we can't actually prove, you just have to take our word on it. 2,000 years ago, God raised Jesus from the dead and therefore the suffering of this world has a semblance of an answer. The king of this world is a good king. And judgment day is made something to look forward to by those who know him. This is really good news. That's why they call it good news. We're going to share communion in a minute. And as we do so, this is one of those times where the reality of this has to come home to us. I think I said the same thing last week, but communion is not thinking fondly about a corpse somewhere. Paul says, whenever you eat this bread and drink this wine, you proclaim the Lord's death. Okay, he died. Until he comes again. I.e., he didn't stay dead. So when we come and we take bread and we take his broken body and we take the blood that was poured out for us, what we are saying is, and he still lives. And it's not me that's inviting you to the table. It's not the Vine Church. It's Jesus who has given this meal. It's Jesus who has said, I am going to come back. I'm going to live and I want you to come and eat with me. Because all these things are true. That he is the good king. That he is the judge. And we are now welcomed into fellowship. This is a joyous occasion. Now, if you don't believe that Jesus is Lord... You're wrong. But, more importantly, if you don't, this isn't for you. Why would you want to come and share in the body and blood of Christ if you don't believe it? But if you do believe Jesus is Lord, you are being invited to the king's table. Come and eat. Let's pray and then we'll share. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful, so grateful that you raised Jesus from the dead. We thank you that you are involved in this world, that you didn't just create and then abandon us. You still hear us, you still care for us, you still love us, you are still at work restoring this world. And Jesus, we just thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for the pain that you endured on our behalf. And Lord, we are just in awe. Though you are, though you were once dead, you are now alive. As we come to share in your body and in your blood, Lord, we just pray that you would bind us together, bring us closer to you. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.